Hey everybody, welcome to Grub Stakers, the podcast that asks the question, is there such a thing as a good billionaire? Today we're profiling potentially good billionaire David Geffen. He is the founder of Geffen Records, Asylum Records, uh, a co-founder of DreamWorks. He is a noted philanthropist, and uh, we say great things about him. So if you are a lawyer who represents David Geffen, you can stop listening now. Uh, for the rest of you, uh, sit back and enjoy the episode. I think we disproportionately stop whites too much. I taught those kids lessons on product development and marketing, and they taught me what it was like growing up feeling targeted for your race. I am proud to be gay. I am proud to be a Republican. You know, I went to a tough school in Queens and used to beat up the little Jewish boys. You know, I love having the support of real billionaires. Hey everybody, welcome back to Grub Stakers. Uh, we're very excited. We got a great episode for you today. Uh, Sean P. McCarthy here, as always, joined by Andy Palmer, Yogi Poywell, and uh, Steve Jeffries is out uh, this week. But you know that's a good thing for him because he will inevitably not be named in the lawsuit we get for recording this episode mm-hmm. about David mm-hmm. Geffen. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Geffen is, uh, according to Forbes magazine, quote, Hollywood's richest man. Forbes magazine has him worth uh, $8.4 billion as of May 2018, and he has a reputation as a bit of a litigious man. Uh, If I can just quote from the New York Times, uh, uh, quote, Mr. Geffen's past use of litigation was never far from the minds of executives at Random House when they wrote an unauthorized biography about him. Uh, one Random House executive said, we certainly vetted this book very carefully. We were aware of his reputation that way. And that was in 2000. So the point is, David Geffen has a reputation for suing people. And uh, if you are someone like myself who likes to go online and read blind items, some of the ones, without exposing myself to any legal detail, I will say the blind items about David Geffen can best be described by um, True Detective Season 1. Yes, yes, definitely. So... If you want to know more about what people on the internet say David Gavin gets up to, just go go pop that one in on a HBO Go and uh, you know look for the masks and the chants and uh, <laughs> the uh, underage people. I, but, I, I'd like to say that everything we say on this episode is uh, allegedly. Yes. Uh, Let's just put the word allegedly uh, yes. at the title of this yes. episode <laughs> in front of every single word we say. Uh, uh, the alleged truth about David Geffen. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you were an attorney for Mr. Geffen, this is a satire podcast. <laughs> what if, though, so, like, this is our secret weapon, though, is Yogi is actually incredibly rich, and he will fight this lawsuit sure. if <laughs> Geffen sues us. So this is our warning to you, Geffen. We will expose you through the discovery <laughs> process. We will subpoena everything. <laughs> we want to see those emails. <laughs> Dude, what if we take down Geffen? Oh, man. Finally get vengeance for Kurt. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But uh, yeah, so I guess uh, we'll uh, just give a a brief overview of David Geffen. Uh, He was the co-founder of DreamWorks as well as Asylum Records, uh, uh, Geffen Records. He's incredibly powerful in both the the movie and music industry. Very clean Um, industries, by the way. Very non... Nothing bad happens No, No bad things going on in the record and movie industry. Everyone's very kind and polite. Mm. Uh, A lot of religious people. uh, Not the religions you're thinking of. But uh, 
Religious indeed. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, Wealth X is a, a wealth, um, um, like a marketing website, basically. They help you advertise to extremely wealthy people, uh, and we should sign up for them at some point. Uh, <laughs> but the, they, Oh, you guys the, don't have membership? <laughs> you, guys but, are, you guys aren't on their platinum membership? But basically they... I like how if we sign up for Wealth X, we're just like dangling a, a little hook with a paper on it that says sue us <laughs> <laughs> um, just casting casting the lawsuit line uh, wealth X as of June 2013 estimates David uh, Geffen's art collection is worth 1.1 billion dollars Wow he has two yachts uh, one called the rising Sun he bought for 590 million dollars another called Polaris he bought for 300 million. Um, so he has almost a billion dollars worth of yachts, too. Uh, and uh, his the Rising Sun is the 11th largest yacht in the world. So, wow. yeah. No, he has, a, he has a pretty good fortune. He also has more than a, a billion in Apple stock. I mean, he couldn't afford the 10th. Uh, you know, when you got the 11th, you just think to yourself, I'm just not in the top 10. I'm never going to be that good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But uh, David Geffen is a, a very interesting person, and uh, we'll get to, to some of the rumors against him a little later. But uh, just what rumors? Well, I don't think there's any rumors. <laughs> um, some of the pizza-related rumors against he, Mr. He likes Ge- pizza. He's a nice yes. guy. <laughs> he's, a, he's a wonderful man, um, and you know he does it for the love of the art. Yes, of course. <laughs> well, he loves. He's a. He's got a billion-dollar art collection, and. I mean, one, of, sh- one of the better uh, conspiracy theories you'll find on Reddit is that essentially his art money is actually a way to launder money for his pedophile uh, video <laughs> business. Alleged. Yes. <laughs> um, but of course, we don't believe that uh, uh, practicing attorney that works for Mr. Geffen. <laughs> These uh, are all satire-based facts in quotations. Um, but yes, so uh, David Geffen is a, uh, you know, actually a largely self-made person, though I think as we'll kind of get into, his uh, mode of operating has been kind of shady and exploitive, even though, you know, uh, I watched like this kiss-ass PBS documentary, American Masters, about David Geffen, and it's just kind of funny how like these people like act like he's doing these artists such a big favor by essentially just screwing them out of all of this money that... You know, maybe like in the, we'll get into it, but uh, we should start from the beginning. David Geffen was born in Brooklyn in uh, 1943. Um, his mother owned a, uh, a tailor clothing corset shop. shop. Corset shop. Yeah. There you go. Um, and his dad was, you know, in and out of work. David kind of resented him, but his father died when he was 18. Um, so his mother was kind of the big force in uh, in his life, and. Um, David Geffen had dyslexia, but of course, like that wasn't really in the common ver- vernacular in the time he was growing up. So he uh, he graduated uh, coll- uh, high school in Brooklyn, and then he went on to drop out of three different colleges. He went to uh, University of Texas Austin, dropped out. He went to Brooklyn College, dropped out. Then he moved to L.A., went to college in Santa Monica, and then dropped out a third time. And he moved to L.A. because he wanted to get into show business. And uh, uh, according to the PBS documentary, he met someone out there uh, and he asked, you know, how do I get into show business? And she said, you should be an agent because agents don't have any talent and don't do anything. (laughs) And so he was like, oh, well, I can do that. And then in 1964, he moves back to New York and he gets a job in the mailroom at the William Morris Agency. Um, And at the William Morris Agency in the mailroom, they had to have a college degree. So he basically 
lied and said he had a degree, a degree from UCLA. And then because he worked in the mailroom, he would get there early every day and go through all the letters. And then eventually he intercepted the letter from UCLA being like, David Geffen never went here. Right. And then just edited <laughs> it. So they said David Geffen did attend and graduated. Yeah. You know, so, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, mail fraud. Sure. But, uh, though I respect that one. Yeah. I mean, that's a good one. Yeah. Respect the hustle. Yeah. I mean, I don't because it's like. Yeah, sure, it's respectable in the fact that, like... How dare he take advantage of the William Morris Corporation? <laughs> but it's... You they know, do good work for all people. All right, the, the point is, though, is that, you know, when you say self-made, the notion is he got there by the, the means of his own fucking chutzpah and didn't do anything shitty to get there. Well, this is a shitty thing. Like, let's, it's not the biggest shitty thing he did. Oh, no. <laughs> no, trust me. Uh, the people who know about the biggest shady things he did uh, are not willing to talk about it for all, fear of their lives. That's right. That's right. <laughs> They're all either six feet under or about to be six feet under. They're all six years old. Well, that's, that's where the that dyslexia comes in. Yes. Or, or spread onto the banks of the Wishkot in Aberdeen, Washington. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, yeah, we mentioned his two yachts. It should just be noted. Uh, just uh, the Obamas uh, traveled uh, on his one of his yachts in April 2017 after they left office. So just kind of an idea of like the power that this guy has. And again, we'll get into some of these stories. But essentially, David Geffen can pick up the phone and end your career. He can call anybody at the major movie or music studios and be like, hey, don't work with this guy or girl or none of my artists are going to work with you ever again. So that's the way power works in, in show business. This is Obama getting the phone call from Giffen. Uh, 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 hey, Dave, uh, how you doing? Oh, come to your yacht? Yeah, I'm trying to solve a piece in the Middle East. Yeah, I'll be there in 15. <laughs> <laughs> it was after he left office. You know. He's still busy. He's <laughs> still. not fucking, let's hang out with an alleged person <laughs> on his yacht fucking time. Uh, uh, I have a paid speaking uh gig uh but i can reschedule that uh andy i don't want this bullshit non-zuckerberg-esque impression during the entire episode i need you to commit to it either more or commit to it less uh i understand your concerns and i have started a committee to uh investigate uh the best way to handle this and uh once the committee comes back uh which is a, a difficult process uh, we will look into your concerns about my uh, Obama impression. Now, David, uh, if we could uh, put the masks on and start speaking backwards, I think that would allow <laughs> us to uh, get this knife through this child's heart. <laughs> At the uh, point of climax. Uh, now, uh, David, uh, I know that uh, you said that would be pizza here, but uh, I didn't expect you to order from Papa John's, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Uh, uh, no, David. It's uh, uh, it's the uh, freshest ingredients. <laughs> you have uh, crickets. I would like to take my mask off now and uh, <laughs> eat the food of my people. <laughs> a Kenyan joke? No, crickets. He's a lizard. What what do lizards eat? I don't know. Hmm. Look, anyway, this is gonna be our best episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm having fun. Anyways, the point is David Geffen's uh, early life. Um, so he's working in the mailroom at William Morris in 1964, and he talks about this in the PBS documentary. He essentially like 
starts reading the mail for the different agents there and kind of like learns how the business works just through that, essentially. So 64, and he works his way up and eventually he becomes an agent. And what uh, uh, being an agent for him is like he goes around like a lot of the different open mics and these kinds of things in New York and scouts new talent. And really what makes uh, uh, David Geffen a multimillionaire is he finds uh, singer-songwriter Laura Nero. And Laura Nero is a, a very talented singer-songwriter, but she really becomes famous for other people doing covers of her songs. So he starts to manage as well as be the, the he starts to be the manager and the agent for Laura Nero in 1967. And what they do is they found a publishing company together, Tuna Fish Records. Um, and so David Geffen starts to pitch all of the songs that she wrote to other artists. And then in 1969, um, uh, three of the top 10 Billboard uh, singles are songs written by Laura Nero performed by other artists. And so David Geffen convinces her to sell the company, uh, her publishing company, and they split the proceeds 50-50. So they sell to CBS in 1969 for $4.5 million, and David Geffen gets half of that. So... As of 1969, in 1969 dollars, he is a multimillionaire already. Right. Uh, you know, so, and, and from there, his capital essentially just keeps on growing. Um, <clears throat> but essentially, like, after he sells, he leaves William Morris uh, to become a personal manager with uh, his friend and partner, Elliot Roberts. Roberts. They found Geffen and Roberts, which was a, um, a management company. And then the next year, they found uh, Asylum Records, or no, Geffen founds Asylum Records, as a joint venture with Atlantic uh, Records. Uh, so essentially, the he's idea got is to grant asylum <laughs> for musicians who could not get signed elsewhere. He would uh, later use the asylum process to uh, find vulnerable teenagers <laughs> fleeing countries. Allegedly. Allegedly. That did not happen. I did not actually base that on any research. <laughs> Just making a joke, people. Um, but so essentially he founds Asylum Records after he's unable to get Jackson Brown a record deal anywhere else. Um, and as we said, he's already a multimillionaire, so he's able to use the capital from that. Um, the The biggest hit, I believe, at Asylum Records was the Eagles. He finds the Eagles. He puts the Eagles together. He gets all of them because the different band members were on different labels. He gets them all consolidated together. Um and so in, in 1970, he founds Asylum Records, and then two years later, he sells it to Warner Communications. Um, A theme with uh, Geffen is that he sells whatever he's in, like, a little bit before their peaks. Right. And, you know, in the, the 92Y interview, he talks about, like, he always sells slightly before. So you'll see very, like, illustrious, like, he sold his house for this much, or he he sold his company for this much. His biggest thing is to invest in something heavily and to build it up a, a fair amount, and then while it's on its way up, he goes, all right, I'm good. Yeah. And so there's the Eagles, there's also Crosby, Stills, and Nash. There's kind of a funny story from the reinventing, um, uh, or inventing I'm David Geffen, uh, the PBS American Masters doc, but uh, they talks about how he got arrested for trying to bring pot on an airplane to David Crosby of Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Um, but basically, yeah, the, the story is simple enough. Uh, David Crosby calls him up and is like, hey, man, you've got to bring my weed from L.A. to New York. And so uh, David Crosby's friends give gives Geffen an envelope. And then as he's going through security, the police officer just shakes the envelope and seeds fall out. <laughs> <laughs> and then he gets arrested and he gets bailed out and he flies. And then David Crosby is pissed at him that he lost his pot. <laughs> and then, like, he kind of, like, 
dovetails that as the reason he decided to sell, but I think it was absolutely just for the money because the other funny part is like they spend probably 20 minutes in that document. Whoa, 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 also, whoa, whoa. How, how Marijuana, you... drugs, I got to get out of the record industry. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently David Geffen was kind of seen as sort of the sober codependent right? Uh, within all of his record ventures where he would just try to always be there for his uh, drugged out clients, which, you know, not necessarily negative, but that was sort of the personality he, or the, the way that he would manage uh, in a lot of different ways was just he would he would constantly enable his musicians. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess there is an advantage, like, when you're in a business relationship to, with someone to have them be a drug addict. Right, Probably gives right. you an advantage at the negotiating table when they're fucking withdrawing from <laughs> smack. Right. Also, also, why would you carry marijuana on a plane in an envelope? Everyone's going to smell that. <laughs> It's it, 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 start with a plastic bag like they didn't know these techniques back then, Andy. <laughs> this was fresh. And also, I love that the, it says seeds fall out. Yeah, like, not like shitty skank weed. It yeah. was 1970. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, oh, yeah. So and actually, uh, to Andy's point, Elliot Roberts, uh, his partner in this original management company, mentions that in the PBS documentary, he says, like, yeah, we were kind of like uh, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, like, him and David Geffen were like the yin and the yang where it's like I would be the guy who like hung out with the artists and like smoked dope and stuff. And that's like a necessary part of the business. And then David <laughs> Geffen handles the other part of the business, which is, you know, being sober and being on the phone with the suits and the big wigs and these kinds of things. Um, and then but, one of the things Geffen always uh, puts himself two to three steps away from what he's pursuing. So whether it's <laughs> what kind of things does he pursue, Yogi? Uh, 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 allegedly uh, contracts <laughs> with people who have dreams and works. Ah, um, but yeah. Oh, wait, and so, like, it's just kind of fu- funny because the PBS documentary, they spend, like, 20 minutes, like, kissing his ass. Like, yeah, at Asylum Records, I, like, gave, you know, or he gave these artists, like, freedom from the man and stuff. And then just, like, two years into it, he sells them to Warner Communications. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, like, all the artists were rightly pissed at him because they get, they signed with David Geffen because they didn't want to be stuck with, like, a corporate label. And then as soon as two years in, he's like, no, I'm cutting my losses. I'm taking my check and I'm gone. You know, so and and just another interesting quote, like and so in 1972, and he himself was very tolerant of people not completely honoring all the uh, aspects of their contracts with him. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, it's like the other thing is like Laura Nero, the the girl who made him a, a multimillionaire. Uh, when he founded Asylum Records, she was supposed to be his first sign, but instead she went to Columbia, and he never never forgave her for that. Oh, really? Yeah, and it's like. All right, but you know she's the reason you have everything because she's the talented person. Right, All you right. did was like be the guy who got her in the door and sold her, which you know, of course, there is some financial value to, but I don't think it's fifty-fifty. But whatever. I mean, you know, they entered into that contract together. I'm not going to get mad at him for that in particular, but it's like maybe be less of a vindictive fuck with the woman who made you a multimillionaire with her singer-songwriter abilities. Anyways. The point is, uh, in 72, he sells to Warner Communications. He sells his record label, Asylum. Um, and he, in the documentary, he claims to be worth $10 million at this point, in 1972. And he says, quote, which seemed like more money than any human being could possibly want, end quote. And uh, that, uh, he's worth about $6 billion when he's saying those words. Right, right. And then, as of today, is worth more than $8 billion. So, it was 79, you mentioned? 72. 
Oh, okay, got he it. sells to Warner mm-hmm. and is worth more than ten million dollars. Right. Um, That's crazy. Mm-hmm. This ten million and seventy nine would be like fucking fifty today. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we could have actually calculated these things Thanks, for you, Jimmy people. Carter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, so he sells um, to Warner Communications, and it's interesting. Warner Communications at this point owns both Atlantic and another record label called Electra. So they merge Electra with Asylum, and then uh, uh, Geffen stays on as the CEO um, until 1975, from 72 to 75. And in 74, he signs a Bob Dylan, uh, just kind of random thing. And also in 74, he dates Cher for 18 months. That's right. And they almost get married. They were madly in love, according to Cher. Yeah. And uh, we'll mention kind of the biography that was published about him in 2000. But he told his biographer, Tom King, despite being a gay man, David Geffen says he, quote, fucked the shit out of Cher. Right, right. Which which is funny because, like, it's such a alpha thing to be like, oh, yeah, I was fucking Cher up, you know, like, so, like, aggressively. But it does also come off as, like, the gayest thing (laughs) to be proud of. Also, it's, it's, I don't want to get into stereotypes, but like. No, please do. Just be like, Cher seems to be the perfect person for a gay man to brag about fucking the shit out of her. Yeah, It's like, there's no other female icon that like a gay person would be like, oh yeah, I fucked the shit out of that person. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like if he, if he was like, oh yeah, I, I fucked the shit out of. I don't know who's another uh, fucking Janis Joplin. Yeah, well, then well, I guess the age is appropriate these days. But like, but if he was like, oh yeah, I'd, I had a whole bunch of sex Dakota Fanning. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Yeah. So around yeah. this time, he gets cancer, though. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, um, like, so essentially, like, uh, he leaves Electra to to break into the film business because, like, uh, he's working for Warner Bros. and they let uh, Warner. Uh, He's working for Warner Communications, and they let him go and work for Warner Bros., the, the movie studio, in 1975, but he gets fired the same year because he is a, you know he, he fights with a lot of people, and Clint Eastwood doesn't like him and these kinds of things. So he gets fired, but then in 76, he gets diagnosed with bladder cancer. Um, so he retires, and uh, that diagnosis later turns out to be wrong in 79. But it's kind of funny because, again, like in the documentary, they interview him and he's like, yeah, you know, I kind of got like the good part of cancer where it's like I got like the the life is too short right, revelation. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Without the actually dying of cancer. Right, right. And it's just so funny, like the lack of self-awareness in this <laughs> motherfucker. It's like you donated a hundred dollars to the New York uh, to the Lincoln Center just to have your fucking name on it yeah. <laughs> and then at 15 million of that was just paying Avery Fisher to take his, uh, his family to take his name off it right. because you're so fucking vain oh that you just want your stupid name on shit in the- speaking of <laughs> he's suspected to be one of the uh, individuals uh, that Carly Simon based her song you're so vain off that's of. right yeah uh, what's what's funny too is that he was good friends with Steve Jobs, mm-hmm. and they had opposite cancer experiences. <laughs> where David Geffen got treated for not having cancer, and <laughs> Steve Jobs got not treated for having cancer. The, the other thing that's funny is in the uh, 92Y interview they talk about the cancer diagnosis, and he's like, "Yeah, so once I found out I had cancer, I moved back to New York and." Uh, 
kind of partied my life away for three years. Yeah. And, you know, you talk because this is the height of like Studio 54 and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so you got to envision that Geffen is literally like, well, going to die soon. Mm-hmm. Might as well do all the drugs and pussy and dick <laughs> yeah. in the world. And then, you know, he gets a second opinion on his cancer diagnosis. And that person's like, um, are you dumb? <laughs> are you an idiot? Because you should probably ask some other people if you got cancer. And he's like, oh, yeah, I guess I probably should do that. He, yeah, yeah. There's he he tells this great story where it's essentially he goes to this uh, doctor of his friends, and the doctor is like, "What? Why are you are you stupid? You should be going to a rich person doctor." <laughs> <laughs> like literally, that's his story. Is that the doctor is like, "With your resources, you should be going to the best doctor in the world." Mm-hmm. And the the story is basically he was misdiagnosed with cancer because he was going to a poor person doctor, right? And so, you know, this doctor was just skimming all this money off of him, telling him he had cancer. And then as soon as he got a real diagnosis from, a, a you know, the well, real doctor. Well, he got a second opinion, and then that doctor was like, hey, you don't have cancer. And David Geffen's like, how do I know you're right? And that guy's like, I don't know, maybe get a third opinion. <laughs> and it's like, it feels like a kind of pyramid scheme in doctors yeah. to be like, if you don't agree with me, I mean, my friend could tell you something if you want to hear him. Yeah, yeah. Well, the doctor like looked at all of his old uh, biopsies or whatever and was like, yeah, there's no cancer here. Right. He, he asked the doctor, how do you know you're right? And he's like, did you see how many chauffeured cars pulled up <laughs> to my office? Like, I'm a rich person, doctor. <laughs> Nobody's taking public transit to get here. That's how you know I'm giving you correct medical advice. Um, but yeah, no, th- this was also when he thought he was going to die when he got into religion because somebody from a particular church told him, brother, you could live forever <laughs> in the underworld. <laughs> <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> Um, but anyways, uh, Steve Jobs was probably like, cancer, whatever. They said Geffen had cancer. Where's, where's my carrot juice? They actually covered it up because Steve Jobs, uh, died of a heart attack after he was yelling so passionately at a Jamba Juice employee. (laughs) (laughs) Fucked up his order. (laughs) You gave me the wedge, but none of the fucking wheatgrass. (laughs) I will end you. I think like uh, I'm paraphrasing, but there is a, an anecdote in the Steve Jobs biography, and we'll, we'll get to Steve Jobs on the Lauren Powell Jobs episode. But basically, he like timed his Jamba Juice employee and like <laughs> chewed him out and like made him cry. Oh, I mean, really? He was just like a psychopath. I mean, like whatever you know, artists are crazy, but it's like this is a kid working at Jamba Juice making nine dollars an hour. You piece of shit. No, I, I mean, I, I hate to have also this. fast and loose with the word artist. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the aside of like people, especially when he died. The I know it was a little bit off track, but like the amount of just like worship, you know, dick sucking that Steve Jobs got. But it's like name one influential woman that's a deadbeat mom. <laughs> you just can't do it. And it's like I love that Steve Jobs was like, I have a daughter. Her name's Lisa. I guess I should embrace her. I will name one of my products that's going to be the greatest thing ever. <laughs> Bombs. The Lisa computer is the worst fucking computer that they released. Yeah, he also didn't talk to the Lisa computer. <laughs> he didn't use its voice recognition software. Um, Steve, love me. I'm working, Lisa. It's like he leaves the Lisa computer at his ex-wife's house. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, but anyways, uh, so Geffen gets the clean bill of health uh, in 1979. You think Steve Jobs said that um, instead of saying he was going out to get a pack of cigarettes, he said he was going out to get a pack of fruit juice. Because <laughs> that's, that's what he used for his cancer treatment. <laughs> oh, really? Well, that's, yeah, the idea. Like, essentially... It's a digression, but for those who don't know the story, uh, uh, Steve Jobs was diagnosed with cancer, and then he pursued a homeopathic treatment, uh, which is called committing suicide, (laughs) (laughs) but doing it in a real California way. (laughs) Um, But anyways, David Geffen, Uh, in 1979, he's given a clean bill of health, and he returns to the music industry. He founds Geffen Records in 1980 as a 50-50 partnership with Warner, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, uh, interestingly enough, he releases John Lennon's last album, uh, which uh, John Lennon, of course, recorded with Yoko Ono. And that album debuted it at uh, number eight on the Billboard charts. And then three weeks later, John Lennon engaged in a very coy publicity stunt (laughs) by being shot to death (laughs) in New York. (laughs) And uh, with the help of one Mark David Chapman, that number, that uh, album shot up to number one. <laughs> That's think, so funny. Like, you think Geffen could, Geffen could have allegedly? <laughs> well, you look, know. I've I've got some message boards open on here <laughs> that uh, take that allegedly pretty far. <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, it became it became a um, a business practice that he would continue uh, into the nineties. According to these message boards. Okay, yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. Um, but yes, no, um, it's, it, again, the, going back to the PBS documentary, so uh, when they talk about this, like, it's clear they edited Geffen, like, <laughs> to try and make him not look like as much of an asshole. Or a psychopath, yeah. Yeah, he seems so thrilled that John Lennon's album <laughs> went to number one after he got shot to death. <laughs> The editing is like, we were so sad about John. I mean, extremely happy about the album sales, but really, what a tragedy. But honestly, we made a fucking bunch of money on that shitty album. But uh, yeah, no. So he tells this story like he goes to the hospital with Yoko Ono, David Geffen does, and then he takes Yoko back to the apartment. And then uh, Geffen's telling the story and he's like, yeah, and when I got there, I saw they had like a a vision board type thing, you know, Mm -hmm. with their album. And it's uh, number eight with a bullet. And then you can tell, like, somebody's like, Gavin, you sure you want to say that? (laughs) (laughs) But no, he goes like, (laughs) their album is there, you know, and it's like number eight with a bullet. And they had drawn an arrow pointing it to number one because they believed that they could, like, wish for things and manifest it. And boy, did that work. (laughs) (laughs) They signed a Faustian bargain. It was a real monkey's paw vision board. (laughs) What they forgot to put on their vision board was not getting shot outside your house. You want me to put on the mask, David? (laughs) Before we sacrifice the child? (laughs) No. Um, I advocate for women's rights and I beat my wife. Joel, I've been reading this book. It's called Catching the Roar. I think you should check it out. That was Ringo, by the way. I want everyone to know <laughs> I was doing Ringo. I'm worried they're going to expose me for stealing everything from this Mark David Chapman guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, using his thoughts for passing them off as my own. <laughs> um, I can't let it get out that I'm a phony. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so... Uh, 
That they do have a big hit with that, but interestingly enough, Geffen Records uh, loses money for like the first five years uh, because, um, you know, like they sign Elton John, um, he he uh, for a lot of money. Um, they sign Neil Young for a lot of money, and Neil Young does not perform as commercially well as they would have liked. Yeah, so Neil Young, for those who don't know, he's uh, known for songs uh, that sound like this. And uh, then they signed him, and he started doing songs that sound more like this. What year is this? Uh, this is 82, 1982, yeah. And there's this, this is a song called Sample and Hold, where it's eight minutes of this. <laughs> Neil Craftwork Diamond? Yeah. yeah. I'm into this. And there's a video of him performing it live, and the audience looks so confused. <laughs> <laughs> like they're just staring blankly. Like, are we? At, are we at a Neil Young concert? Because that looks like him. So, <laughs> David Geffen uh, sued Neil Young. Yes, for uh, experimenting <laughs> with his music, which, like, it was a hilarious turn by Neil Young. But it's also like you sign an artist to be an artist, and artists are gonna experiment, right? And so, but he like. Geffen just sees dollars. Like if uh, uh, we'll talk about this later, but when he talks about work or starting DreamWorks, um, and he just talks about the movies, he talks about them entirely based on their returns. Right, right. And I mean, it's he's, almost like he's a capitalist or something, <laughs> you know. And he's got that uh, narcissistic capitalist curse, which is I want to name everything I own after myself, even mm-hmm. the things I give money to, because fuck what they are, they're now me. Yeah. That was nice that we did play a clip for our audience of what a multi-million dollar lawsuit sounds like. I just like the idea that like while he's recording this, Geffen's lawyers are like in the studio <laughs> drafting the papers. Um, but yeah, no, and again, in the PBS documentary, they do confront him about this. And he's like, yeah, you know, I had some people around me who like encouraged me to go <laughs> with the lawsuit and I regret it. <laughs> It's like the only bad thing about him they put in the the documentary is that he sues Neil Young uh, uh, in 1983. And and he he sued Neil Young for playing music that was, quote, non-characteristic, unquote, of Neil Young and also, quote, Uh, (laughs) non-commercial. And you know what? Look me in the eyes and tell me this is a commercial goal. I will say, if you can't sell this, it's on you. (laughs) In the 1980s, come on, everyone was on coke. They'd love this shit. I love um, it now. Andy, play more of it. <laughs> if you're listening, start dancing. And if you don't like this, uh, we did have to make Andy agree to not play any Nirvana today. <laughs> <laughs> so this is what you get instead. Um, but so he, he drops the lawsuit eventually, Geffen does, and he apologizes to Neil Young, but their relationship was permanently harmed. Mm-hmm. Um, a running theme in Mr. Geffen's life. Right. But also, in 1981, he starts um, Geffen Films, and they released their first film, Risky Business, in 1983. Oh, what's that about? It's a huge smash hit. But interestingly enough, the director actually talks about this, is that um, in the end of Risky, the director talks about how Risky Business was supposed to be kind of like a dark satire of, like, capitalists and capitalism, uh, which he even says, like, ironically enough, David Geffen bought it and, you know, (laughs) sold it. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, But... 
uh, the director talks about how Geffen insisted that they change the ending because the original ending of Risky Business, he fails, essentially. He huh. gets rejected from Princeton. And David Geffen has insisted that he succeed in the ending. And, he get, and they asked him how that was resolved. And the director said, well, like most things, David Geffen got his way. Yeah, right. <laughs> so they changed the ending to make it a happy ending. Uh, and it was a huge hit. Um, they also did Beetlejuice in 1980, Little Shop of Horrors, 1986. So uh, in the 1980s, Geffen finally starts to have success in the film uh, business. But um, so interesting thing. So it, you can blame David Geffen for uh, <laughs> half of Hot Topics. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, let's just say there's there's a reason Mr. Geffen is so in tuned with what the youth of this country <laughs> wants. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> um, no, that one is true. He he is in tune <laughs> with what the youth want. Allegedly, uh, David Geffen is responsible for hot topics. Um, but so, anyways, um, in uh, in '85, so he signs this joint venture with uh, Warner Music in uh, um, 1980 for his label, gave it Geffen Records. But in '80, it's a five-year deal. So in 1985, they're up for renewal, and David Geffen wa- asks for a five million dollar advance to continue. But, and this is according to uh, the biography, The Operator, that was published in 2000 and made Geffen very angry. Uh, in order to renegotiate, I'm quoting from the San Francisco Gate here, uh, the newspaper, uh, Geffen knew that his old friend Mo o- Osteen uh, at Warner was tough to bargain with. So he engineered the end of their friendship that would and did leave him free to negotiate with Warner's Steve Ross, who rarely denied his protege Geffen at anything. Geffen destroyed the friendship by taking Osteen's wife to lunch and telling her that her husband didn't really care about her. Apparently, he said, you know your husband doesn't love you. What? (laughs) So basically, in order to um, be able to negotiate with a more amenable person at Warner, he destroyed his his friendship with Osteen, though I guess they've made up because Geffen's so powerful or whatever. You know what she did after that lunch? What's that? She went home, started crying, and then put on this record. (laughs) And then blew her brains out. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so essentially, like, in order to uh, negotiate better, he takes his friend's wife to lunch and then tells her that her husband doesn't love her. <laughs> so, you know, it just gives you kind of an idea of... Uh, psychopath. Exactly. Psychopath. Yeah, let's no, not, the guy sugarcoat it. doesn't that's, really have... That's a psychopathic move. ...permanent relationships. But he's actually able to, because of this move, he's negotiating with Steve Ross of Warner now, and the deal that Steve Ross enters into is one of the stupidest... Uh, in music history, it kind of went down. So basically what happened is, because as we mentioned, Geffen Records is losing money at this point, mm-hmm. and Geffen originally asked for like a $5 million advance to keep going, and then instead th- that gets rejected. So Geffen says, okay, give me $0 advance, but in five years I get 100% control of Geffen Records. He takes the entire 50% that Warner has at this point. Right. And so they sign that deal in 85, and then like in 86, and then... um. Geffen at this point has like a team of A&Rs, three in particular, um, who are mentioned in the documentary. Uh, music fans may or may not be uh, particularly familiar with them, but they saw his A&Rs go out and they scour the country. His A&Rs sign Aerosmith in 1984. They signed Guns N' Roses in 1986. Um, I forget the exact year, but they get Nirvana as well. Um, but basically... Who had the smash hit. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
But so basically, Geffen uh, gets all of these, you know, hugely popular bands. And like his entire role in like Guns N' Roses, uh, in the PBS documentary, they interview the A&R who signed Guns N' Roses. And he says, you know, Guns N' Roses had, you know, Welcome to the Jungle. And they were like stuck at 200,000 records sold. So he just said to the A&R, said to David Geffen, if you can just get these guys on MTV, you know, that's all we need to break them through. And so Geffen calls up his friend at MTV and they put the Guns N' Roses video on at 4 a.m. and it lights up the switchboards. And then from that stuck at 200,000, just playing them on MTV gets them the exposure that eventually allows them to sell almost 100 million records. Wow, at you 4 a.m. Yeah, MTV's poll was that like fucking amazing, like crazy? Yeah. That's nuts. Yeah, I guess well, the Guns N' Roses fans were all up doing coke. Yeah, sure. <laughs> right, 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 right. I mean, it's a different time. People are watching... TV at 4 a.m., you know, high on smack. But it's it's kind of a point where it's like, you know, whatever you say about uh, Geffen's work in the 70s where he did do some work, you know, discovering artists like the Eagles, Crosby, Stills, and Nash and bringing them to mainstream exposure, by the 80s, he is full capitalist. Right. Where he's hiring these A&Rs and saying, go find me bands, and then because it's my company, I am going to cash the billion-dollar checks. Like, you'll get some money, but I am just getting money for having money. Like, in the 80s, he was signing real artists like uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. You know, it was about the music. 70s. Or 70s, and then in the 80s, uh, he he, uh, subjected us to Aerosmith. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But so, anyways... uh, But then he, uh, he repented for that, by destroying them all with Kurt Cobain. <laughs> uh, Kurt saved rock from itself. Yes. Yes, Kirk, uh, Kurt stole black music, but he did it the right way. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> Geffen was like crying like the end of Old Yeller when he put Kurt Cobain down with that shotgun. Sean, Sean thinks black music is Black Francis from the Pixies. <laughs> Um, but anyways, um, so essentially this is, you know, one of the stupidest deals in music history is, uh, all control of Geffen Records is signed over to David Geffen as of 1990. He owns all of it and he almost immediately sells it for, uh, in 1990, he sells Geffen Records for $550 million of MCA stock. The next year, MCA is sold to a Japanese company, um, and Geffen's $550 million stock becomes $750 million cash. Wow. So he says he is a billionaire by 1995. And, uh, yeah, and then... Wow, a billionaire by 85? 95. 95. Oh, 95, oh. Yeah. But so basically, yeah, that's how Geffen like really broke through to not even be a multimillionaire anymore. He just became this a is billionaire. And you know what really drove the sales in 1994? <laughs> Was it the Neil Young record on a resurgence? <laughs> <laughs> it had a real rebound. They undervalued that one. Man, so in just, it's just that uh, David Geffen, he learned his lesson from John Lennon, which is, you know, when someone who was Kill in your a, rock stars. Yeah. <laughs> What if like Gavin was like one of those like mob bosses who like could designate like hitmen, but he just loves the thrill so much that he like <laughs> went to Kurt's hel- house himself with the shotgun, <laughs> put the gloves on. You know what's what's great is that so there is a group of people who believe that David Geffen killed Kurt Cobain. Hell yes! And so I I looked it up and found the message boards, and there's this message board above topsecret.com. That is a big conspiracy theory message board. Like their new topics um, are, uh, let's see, the deodorant conspiracy. The background of their thing is the moon landing. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, 
I'm I'm in in this message board and frequently go on. And or I'm looking at this thread about David Geffen and immediately like these people are like, "Yeah, this is bullshit." <laughs> 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 like these people on this moon landing um and a message board are just like, "Yeah, this doesn't make sense." They're like, guys, we all know Geffen was not involved in Tower 7. <laughs> it was the CIA and a group of venture capitalists. Oh, yeah, there's uh, definitely uh, some people who are saying it was the CIA. <laughs> that the Geffen CIA. worked with the CIA <laughs> <laughs> to kill Kurt Cobain. Oh, God, interestingly. I, I, Allegedly. Yes. Um, but actually, just kind of like related to that, like when I was doing some Geffen research, I was on this website that had like a lot of like hard dirt about Geffen. And then I look in the top corner and I see that the website image is a Star of David. <laughs> and I'm like, All right. Well, this website does not seem to be saying nice things about Jewish people. So, um, oh, yeah. And I guess we should mention that uh, it is kind of it is a stereotype against gay men that they are pedophiles, you know. So. I don't think Geffen is a satanic pedophile because he is a gay man. I think he is a satanic pedophile because Who he is happens worth, to be a gay man because he's worth eight point four billion dollars. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what makes him a satanic pedophile. Um, That's crazy. Allegedly, allegedly, you mentioned that he's a billionaire in ninety four, ninety five. Yeah. So that's pre-tech billionaires. Like this is, yeah. You know, outside of finance, he's one of the first American billionaires. Yeah, I mean, he's one of the early billionaires, honestly. Wow, that's, yeah. cr- that's crazy. And definitely, like, as we mentioned, the richest man in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, but uh, so in 94, he uh, co-founds uh, DreamWorks along with Steven Spielberg and Jerry Katzenberg. Also did not pay Kurt's legal fees when uh, um, Vanity Fair wrote a hit piece about him, uh, which is attributed to being one of the big things that drove him to suicide after that hit piece uh, caused Child Protective Services to try to take... Uh, Francis Bean away from them when she yes, was born. Yes, but Andy, what were the album sales like after his death? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying... Kevin engineered he, a Machiavellian thing to make Kurt kill himself. He they, like, calls up the Vanity Fair journalist <laughs> and like, you know what would really drive Kurt insane? <laughs> if you took his daughter away. <laughs> you want another good album? You know what to do. I'm just saying, for the all the money that he made... Kurt should have been uh, aware when he took him aside. He's like, I'm the one who made John Lennon number one. <laughs> and I'll do the same for you. <laughs> Kurt's takeaway, the year that Nevermind uh, crushed the Billboard charts. After legal fees, only 80000 Really? Yeah. That's fucking nuts. Yeah. And yeah, and like this is just the capitalist system where it's like... Uh, you know, we can debate about this. I would say, you know, people... That's, by the way, in the book, uh, Montage... Or no, uh, Heavier Than Heaven. Heavier Than the Heaven. The Kurt uh, biography. Did you guys know Andy's a white guy who's into Nirvana? <laughs> He's very original. <laughs> um, but anyways, the point is, like, we can argue, and I would say, okay, the people who do help artists get some exposure, of course, deserve some cut, but essentially, under our currently configured capitalist system, their takeaway is so out of whack with the value actually contributed, where we have, like, what we're talking about with Kurt Cobain making David Geffen a billionaire and getting 80000 from fucking Nevermind... So David Geffen, uh, along with Steven Spielberg and uh, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, uh, co-founds DreamWorks in 1994. And then in the PBS documentary, uh, 
David Geffen gives his entire ownership of DreamWorks to his foundation, and they interview Steven Spielberg, and he goes, David has a very generous soul. <laughs> and uh, we haven't gotten into it enough yet, but I do want to do it more in a future episodes about what a complete scam private foundations are, because all billionaires set them up now. There's several hundred thousand throughout America, but the thing about private foundations is they are only required by law to donate about 5% of their assets every year to nonprofits. But nonprofits, like in the case of the Koch brothers, can be the fucking Cato Institute or um, uh, uh, Andrew Schaaf Mellon, uh, the Mellon heir who funded the um, uh, Heritage Foundation, you know, etc. So like a lot of these private foundations, there's no disclosure. Uh, we have no idea what they're fucking doing with the money, but they get a tax deduction for doing it and right. they get to be like, oh, I have a foundation. I'm such a good person. So private foundations are one of the ultimate charity scams in the fucking world. And, you know, if he wanted to do good with his money, he should just give it to Oxfam or whatever organization that will actually spend it. But instead, he gives it to his private foundation so that he can jerk himself off and Steven Spielberg can kiss his ass. Uh, so, again... Open up the books in your private foundation, asshole. We have no idea what you're doing with that money, and I'm going to guess most of it just gets spent naming buildings after him. Right. Uh, My favorite building that he got named after him was the uh, Geffen Playhouse. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a house where plays are, but boy, does that have uh, (laughs) a... If only Boy, it does a it have a, a, a pizza with extra sausage <laughs> sound to it. The Geffen Playhouse is actually the uh, basement area of his yacht. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so anyways, they fa- uh, they found DreamWorks in 94. It's not illegal if it's under the waterline. Yeah, in international waters. Oh <laughs> they found... Allegedly. It's <laughs> alleged. <laughs> They found DreamWorks in 94. Uh, they get a billion-dollar line of credit from J.P. Morgan, plus $600 million in a uh, in equity financing. Geffen leaves in 2008. Paramount eventually purchases um, DreamWorks. And uh, I guess we can just kind of talk a bit what the time we have left about uh, the philanthropy as well as some of the rumors. Um, Geffen was, for the record, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2010. Uh, you know, Best parasite. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, um, and, oh, and just like random thing. Uh, he has, uh, so essentially, like, I personally believe Geffen knows a lot of where the bodies are buried. I don't know if he was involved in any of these things, but like his taste is uh, legal men for the most part that we know of. He, he did. He brought a 26-year-old to a um, Obama state dinner, like a really hunky, like ripped football player type boyfriend. They were dating and, since that guy was 22. Yeah, nice. And then uh, he also recently, I think in t- late 2014, according to the Daily Mail, he broke up with his 20-year-old boyfriend, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that he had to get a restraining order That's against right. his 20-year-old boyfriend. And this is a at the time, I believe, 69-year-old man dating a 20-year-old. So, you know, I mean, nice. it's like not illegal, but. Uh, and again, of course, plenty of men do that with women, and the lesser extent, vice versa. But uh, you know, you could say it's uh, barely legal. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind, Andy. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I mean, the thing is, is that like, so, so there's also like that open secret allegation. Like, didn't right. he invest in? Do we want? Uh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess like, let's just address the rumors here. If you've seen the documentary, an open secret, uh, they talk about Digital Entertainment Network, which was uh, run by Mark Collins Rector, who is a convicted pedophile. Uh, and it was supposed it was a precursor to YouTube. It was founded in the late '90s, or I think 2000, 99, Excuse me. Um, but so they uh, 
they essentially had the idea to start up YouTube, but also Netflix and produce original content, but there wasn't enough broadband yet, so they eventually failed. But um, the according to this documentary, I'm just going to quote from BuzzFeed for a second here uh, to avoid <laughs> legal problems. <laughs> uh, we're actually, we'll start with an IndieWire Um Digital Entertainment Network's original backers included uh, Brian Singer, another director of X-Men who's been accused of pedophilia, allegedly, and David Geffen. Uh, Wait, is the accusation alleged or the fact that it he was, did it alleged? It's filed in court. Got it, okay. He has been sued over this. Uh, Brian Singer has been. So uh, uh, Brian Singer put up $50,000. David Geffen put up uh, $250,000 to a digital entertainment network. This is according to IndieWire. And then if I can... Which makes him five times the pedophile of (laughs) David Singer. Allegedly. Allegedly. If I can just quote from BuzzFeed here. Uh, This is a long piece that's uh, very fascinating. Uh, It talks about a lot of different things. But quoting from BuzzFeed, um, they're talking about uh, Mark Collins Rector, the, the pedophile... Uh, convicted who ran Digital Entertainment Network, end quote. They say, running his business out of a Los Angeles mansion, he and his two business partners, his boyfriend at the time, Chad Shackley, and former boyfriend and former child star Brock Pierce, who is now a board member at the Bitcoin Foundation, uh, hosted lavish parties attended by Hollywood's gay A-list. Their guests included relative newcomer Brian Singer, now the director of the X-Men movies, and the legendary media mogul David Geffen, both of whom were investors in DEN. It was at those parties that Collins Rectors and others allegedly sexually assaulted half a dozen teenage boys, according to two sets of civil lawsuits. The first uh, filed in uh, 99 uh, through 2002, and the second filed in 2000, um, I believe, 15, 17... Um, and if you watch an open secret, what's they they interview some of the, some of these boys mm-hmm. uh, who come forward, and what's very bizarre is like some of the shows they created like were about like a teenage boy who gets taken in by these like two rich men, and the boy comes over and is like, "Wow, you guys have a pool," and that's basically the plot of the show that they made, mm-hmm. which was. Essentially, what actually happened was like, you know, they would take in these young actors and be like, hey, come live at our mansion. But sure. then yeah. this, uh, what, what actually happened also was uh, a sexual assault. Allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah, I mean, like, I, this is not necessarily according to this, but like the, like the way to brainwash people is to put them in scenarios where they are enacting what is going to happen to them, but without the terrible part of it. And so, right. like, this is a perfect example of like, oh, you're going to be in a, in a TV show, and you're just going to be a kid that hangs out with rich people. And then slowly that becomes uh, a normality that you're okay with, and then it becomes something that you want to reveal to people in the future because it's fucked up. David yeah. Geffen took them aside and is like, you know, John Lennon and Kurt Cobain tried to reveal what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyways, just to continue from BuzzFeed, because we should mention this, uh, Geffen, uh, I'm quoting here, Geffen was not accused of any misconduct in the suits nor named as a defendant. His attorney said that Geffen on occasion was a guest at the parties given by DEN investors, but recalls no one at them who appeared to be underage. And BuzzFeed also quotes Geffen's attorney as telling them very, very clearly, if you publish anything bad, we will sue you. So... <laughs> Um, but and it's just kind of a it's a very fascinating story. Um, but um, basically, you can believe uh, Mark Collins Rector or not the pedophile, but he's was very terrified of Geffen, and he believed he, he in fact went so far as to believe Geffen would kill him and fled the country. Which is a theme with people that <laughs> <have been laughs> threatened by Geffen. 
Um, and, and just someone needs to take that guy aside and be like, "Dude, you're safe. Yeah, you don't have a hit record." <laughs> but uh, uh, so there... a hit record or a hit record. <laughs> <laughs> But essentially, uh, Brock Pierce, the child star we mentioned, who was also named in these lawsuits, t- uh, testified under oath that uh, Mark Collins' record rector had reported repeatedly refused. I'm quoting from BuzzFeed, had repeatedly refused Geffen's offers to buy the firm. Geffen, Pierce said, responded, "I'm going to take your business whether you like it or not." And Mark Collins' rector essentially believes that Geffen was the guy who leaked some of these things to the Los Angeles Times, which eventually forced him to um, flee the country and uh, uh, divest himself of this digital entertainment network. And um, they also believe that, like, a guy that was um, uh, cavorting with them was also passing information along to David Geffen and spying on them. So the article's, like, pretty creepy, just in the sense that, like, Geffen, again, I, I... I would ne- I would never, <laughs> never, Mr. Geffen's attorneys, say that he was involved <laughs> in any of these things personally, but I do believe he knew about a lot of these things that were going on, and he certainly knows more than he said, but because he's Hollywood's richest man and he can pick up the phone and destroy people's careers, people are very cautious about naming him publicly. And um, He also allegedly produced Shrek, Shrek 2. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> But just like um, uh, one thing on this that, uh, again, a lot of smoke, no fire, but Rose McGowan, of course, as you all know, was a a woman who was uh, assaulted by Harvey Weinstein, and she's uh, named a lot of uh, men, uh, such as Ben Affleck, who knew what was going on and didn't do anything. Um, She tweeted on October 30, 2017, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, Kevin Spacey, Brian Singer, Garth Anseer, David Geffen, good afternoon. How are you today? Of course, the other three men have all been accused of rape and pedophilia. Uh, David Geffen has not been. But she deleted that tweet not too long after she sent it. So it just seems inconceivable to me that this guy, who's the most powerful man in Hollywood, didn't know some of these things were going on and at least didn't say anything. And so I mean, it's extremely plausible because, you know, the, there was a roast that Jimmy Iovine had for um, David Geffen, and uh, Tom Hanks was roasting him as the MC, and he's making, you know, like bits. It's like, remember when we buried that kid in Vegas? <laughs> 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 the audience laughs. <laughs> Um, but you know, Hanks is the Tom Shuley. Your career is further underground than that child outside the <laughs> desert sands of the Castaway Island was just bodies, and we put <laughs> sand on top. But anyways, what was the? So I mean, like Tom Hanks is doing like you know bullshit, like uh, hey, how many of y'all been on his yacht? You know, like very like uh, not big enough for everyone in this room, but uh, big enough for you. You know, like but like it's a room full of people who are uh, extremely established and well-off. Mm-hmm. And it's it's sick. It's just disgusting because it's like, you know, all of these things, whether it's the Me Too movement or this pedophilia with Corey Haim and Corey Feldman to just the conspiracies around Kurt Cobain and John Lennon, it's like uh, the water's dirty. Mm-hmm. And the blood in the water exists because fucking there's a shark in it. And that's David Geffen, mm-hmm. allegedly. Um, and then just like one other thing I found online, and again, this is an anonymous commentator. This could be complete bullshit, but from what everything else I've read about Geffen, uh, and also like, you know, just watching like the Weinstein documentary that Frontline did, which I recommend, but they talk about how Weinstein would hire 
you know, like in, in this business, in a lot of business, they hire essentially, um, what do you call them? Not security firms, but opposition research firms mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to look into their competition. But you can also pay them to essentially look into women who are accusing you of things. And so the Frontline documentary goes through how one of these Hollywood firms looked into women who were accusing Weinstein of things. And so, you know, again, I, I totally believe Geffen has used these kinds of things. But the point is there's... Oh, a yeah, in his uh, 92Y interview, he faults... Uh was it the former CEO, uh, but at that time, current CEO of Disney, Michael Eisner, for letting Weinstein walk away? Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, but so this is a, an, an anonymous commentator from datalounge.com, which is kind of a, a LGBT-focused um, gossip website. But anonymous commentator, take this with a grain of salt, but see if this seems like something David Geffen might do. He says, quote, I went on two dates with Geffen back in 1990. I was 19. He seemed to be the perfect gentleman. Then a friend that had been one of his boy toys told me that Geffen had me followed and investigated for about a month prior. He told me that he had actually seen some pictures and that he knew I was adopted. No one knew that. I was so freaked out and pissed, I just stopped taking his calls. He basically stalked me for about two months after that. He's evil to the core. And it's like everything I know about Geffen is that, from my research, I don't know the guy personally, but he's a control freak. He needs to be the guy in charge. He hates having a boss. He wants control over every single little detail. So it is totally believable to me that he would look into people and investigate them and know a lot of dirt just for the way he operates his business to make money, but also just to control people in his life. And uh, the thing is, like, there have been a lot of different press reports about, again, we've, we've mentioned his 20-something boyfriends. He has a particular type. He has a lot of boy toys. You know, this is a 70-year-old but, but man. He, he, even outside of all the things that are alleged, there are genuine stories of him being a bit psychopathic. Whether yeah. it's the, I'm going to tell your wife you don't love her, or the, you know, uh, there's a few articles that uh, we haven't even touched about, like him being a horrible neighbor in New York where he's doing construction and then like, ruining the properties for his neighbors, basically, and they're suing him for $2 million. Yeah, yeah. And then once that lawsuit is settled, he claims the construction company fucked up and then sues them for a million dollars. It's mm-hmm. like... Yo, Gaff, you don't need that million. Like, move on, bro. Like, it's one of those things where, you know, it's not just that they're bad people who are evil and mean, but they're sadistic in how evil they are. And also, according to this message board, uh, the CIA is the private property of the Rothschilds (laughs) and the globalists. They protect international interests of the ultra-rich. Nothing else. In my opinion... Cobain or IMO Cobain was useful as a walking honey boy for heroin use and eventually became worth more dead than alive (laughs) (laughs) had too much knowledge of the inner workings of the CIA funded (laughs) subculture of drugs teen prostitution blackmail etc and too much potential power to damage that agenda it is entirely plausible that he was quote suicided by the CIA CIA record mogul David Geffen profited on both the deaths of John Lennon and Kurt Cobain. In both cases, space, comma, space, they left behind heroin-addicted, domineering widows who aspired to rock fame. (laughs) This is just a smidgen of the huge amount of research done on the topic on this thread. And then there's a link. That's from uh, Thunker Dome. Okay. um, On the above Mr. Geffen's attorneys, yes. We believe all of this. Um, but, uh, I guess, um, I know we're running out of time here, but just like a couple other interesting things we've mentioned and I've, I've quoted a bit, uh, from 
the 2000 biography of David Geffen, The Operator. It was written by a Wall Street Journal a journalist that David Geffen originally cooperated with, but then uh, withdrew his cooperation when he decided that the book was going to paint him unfairly. Um, but so the, uh, the, the guy's name was Tom King. Uh, the book was released in 2000. And just to quote a little bit from a, 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 a New York Mag article about it, um, one time Tom King re- re- returned from an interview with a subject uh, get with Geffen calling him furious about a question he just found out had been asked. So, you know, like the guy had called up Geffen and told him what questions or Geffen right. called the guy and been like, what questions did this guy ask you? And just all these kind of like weird kind of control freaky things. Um, but basically, uh, this New York Mag article ends in a, a very disturbing but also funny way. And I just want to quote it to give you guys context here. So the book was published in 2000. This is written in 2000. New York Mag. King, Tom King, who sets out on his book tour this week, is back to work at the Journal, writing a weekly column about Hollywood. So far, being Geffen's number one enemy hasn't hindered his job. If anything, it gets my calls returned faster, he says. At the end of the day, says one of King's colleagues, who cares what David Geffen thinks about him? He's a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. What's the worst thing that could happen to Tom? He won't get a contract at DreamWorks? And now, if I may just quote from the LA Times three years later... Entertainment journalist Tom King, who wrote the Wall Street Journal's influential Hollywood Journal, Hollywood Journal column and a best-selling biography of mogul David Geffen, died Sunday. <laughs> what? <laughs> he was 39 years old. Uh, he, King was in the Hamptons in New York visiting Broadway producer Jeffrey Seller of Rent, a friend of King's. Seller said that King had been in good spirits but had complained of a headache, although it seemed like nothing out of the ordinary. He said he had discovered King shortly before 8 a.m. Sunday, collapsed on the bathroom floor. He was taken to a Southampton hospital where he was pronounced dead. Initial reports, natural causes, autopsy forthcoming. Um, but, you know... Some blind items about that one, <laughs> but basically... Guys, you know what I hate? Yeah. How popular our podcast is going to be when we're <laughs> all dead. <laughs> I really hate knowing uh, that we're going to get hits upon hits upon hits after we all suddenly get headaches. You know what I mean? My only request is that they play this at my funeral. <laughs> <laughs> My last words are going to be good news, guys. David Geffen says he's going to get us the number one podcast in America. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, hey, we're not alleging any foul play. Uh, 39-year-olds who have reported no health problems at all in their lives just dropped dead all the time in the Hamptons (laughs) three years after writing a controversial biography about David Geffen. Um, I I mean, I think it was just a coincidence, but boy... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but just like uh, yes, Sean, it was a coincidence. <laughs> we all agree. Yes, uh, right, Andy. Coincidence, yes, correct. It was a coincidence. Yes. Yeah. Um, but just uh, so the the story about him telling the guy's wife that she doesn't love him anymore comes from that book. But one other fun story. Um, according to the book, uh, again, this is from San Francisco Gates summary of the book. While producing the Girl Meets Girl sports film Personal Best, Geffen clashed so violently with director Robert Towney that he extracted vindiction. Quote, in a move so Machiavellian that could have, could have fit into a scene in town script for Chinatown. I guess he wrote the movie. As the film neared completion, Geffen threatened to pull out unless Towney signed a contract for two more films. That may seem like an olive branch, but according to King, Geffen knew that the two films would never be made and that Towney's career would be ruined because oh, wow. he would be obligated to exactly. Geffen until they were. Right. So essentially, he just signed him to two films and then refused to let him make the films and then he couldn't do anything until he made the two films you know 
So it's just that kind of Machiavellian shit is just how Geffen operates. Tried to Frank Ocean him. Wasn't smart enough. <laughs> uh, and I guess we can real quick uh, mention Geffen's philanthropy. Um, Geff- so there's a Gawker article is pretty great. Geffen donated $100 million to, to UCLA to, quote, establish a private middle and high school on the Westwood campus party for the children and faculty of UCLA staff. So essentially, he uh, donated money to establish a private school for staff members of the elite university UCLA. Uh, and then, quoting Gawker, the name of the school, do you even have to ask? The Geffen Academy. <laughs> Um, but just a, a one more fun quote from Gawker. $100 million can do a lot of good. For example, GiveWell estimated that a donation of that size to the Against Malaria Foundation could save nearly 30,000 lives. Um, so to repeat, the money could save 30,000 human lives. Instead, Geffen is building a private school with it so that his favorite university might gain a bit of prestige. According to Gawker. And also, as we mentioned, he gave $100 million to the Lincoln Center to get his name on it. He gave $100 million to MoMA to get a gallery with mm-hmm. his name on it. And this is the guy that St- uh, Steven Spielberg describes as having such a generous spirit. <laughs> that he's still worth $8.4 billion. He has a billion in yachts, a billion in art. Right. And he just gives money to fucking rich people institutions to put his name on them. Is it crazy that he spent more money on gas for his yacht than he probably has given away? It was probably nuts, but you know, <laughs> he probably had to pay people out of his foundation for their silence. <laughs> um, it's crazy how he, him starting a private school doesn't bode well for his conspiracy as well. Um, I, I guess that's about it, though. I, um, we, do, we don't have a Patreon, uh, but I was thinking just a random thought is that instead of doing like the two episodes a month, we could actually get our patrons to uh, decide... We- decide which medications Andy takes before we record. <laughs> so like at the ten, the ten dollar a month level you get to donate and like you decide which of Andy's four prescriptions he'll fulfill. My advice would be get him to take none of his antidepressants and double his Adderall dose. <laughs> um oh, but yeah. Well, you know the the two episodes for five dollars, I think that model's played out. So our experimenting with drugs on Andy model. I think this is what's gonna But you know the point is after we release this episode we will all be killed so (laughs) unfortunately steven will be coming steve jeffries will be coming back to a uh, empty podcast but he'll he'll keep it going (laughs) after denouncing us (laughs) in a in a uh, deposition forced by mr geffen's lawyers um yeah i think that's about it on my end you guys anything we missed on mr geffen uh at one point he was a uh Andy, turn that off. He, at one point, he was an outspoken Democrat, but uh, basically after Bill Clinton didn't fulfill a pardon that he wanted, uh, he was kind of like, fuck politics. I just want to party with the motherfuckers. Yeah, and then ironically, Obama didn't do the same pardon, right. but still got to cruise on his yacht. Yeah. So maybe there was something else, maybe some sort of pizza-related dispute. <laughs> <laughs> Allegedly. Um, oh, and Andy mentioned he made a bunch of money off the savings and loan crisis, and it's just kind of funny because he like he bragged in an interview about what a value investor he was. And just for people who don't know, the savings and loan crisis involved $124 billion of taxpayer money being spent to bail out these companies because <laughs> right. he was like, yeah, I bought these stocks for like pennies on the dollar and made a bunch of money because I'm a genius because, yeah, yeah. you know. That's what a value investor does. They're waits like, for the government to fucking step in. Yeah, he just bought a bunch of junk bonds, and then the government bailed out 
on like you know 29 cents to the dollar he said like kroger or something mm -hmm. and then he said in 18 months they were uh back to full value mm -hmm. anyways uh we'll so i think we can definitively say david geffen not a good billionaire i think that's uh the assessment i'm getting here Corey Feldman, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the podcast. <laughs> uh, Yogi has enough money to fulfill your $10 million. Uh, we will get you a new identity, <laughs> but you do have to give us the cooperating information. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, Mr. Geffen, thank you for the music. We owe it all to you. In uh, one of the articles written about uh, his Malibu mansion, basically the beaches are available for the public but uh david geffen decided uh fuck that noise and so there was a area where you could like you know walk on to the beach but david geffen built a mock four-car garage <laughs> to block the area Fucking and asshole. put a curb that had like the tow away red marks on it and it's interesting because in the article that's i think it's a uh, verge or verb or whatever it is he the guy goes uh i mean it's kind of fucked up that david geffen did this but he also did give us never mind and that's the thing that's like you can't qualify their shitty actions by some of the good that they've done in the world. And I mean, it's one of those things where, Andy, turn up this music, because the reality is, even though Geffen gave us this masterpiece, it doesn't exclude him from the bullshit that he's done. You know you know what those people said when they withdrew their lawsuits against um, Brian Singer? Hmm. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> And with that, this has been Grubstakers. My name is Yogi Polywall. I'm Andy Palmer. I'm Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Back next week. Oh, 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 oh,